from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Half of the battle is getting the judgment. The other half is actually collecting them. You have to find where their assets are, attach them or garnish them. People don't go out of their way. It's not like at the end of the trial, they just hand you the money. Uh, he is going to have a very difficult time collecting on a judgment from a defunct organization. It seems like everybody wants to sue everybody these days for defamation. Geico didn't give this woman the, the STD. That's where I keep getting stuck on this Geico one. makes the argument on appeal that there was fraud and collusion here. If the judgment is entered and you're intervening after the judgment is entered, in, in essence, you have no real rights. The judge was able to make this a higher court's problem, right. basically. Right. I'm Sarah Fenske. Have you heard about the Missouri woman that had sex in a car and now could see a big payday? She got a sexually transmitted infection. She sued and won $5.2 million from the auto insurer. A Missouri court has now upheld that decision. Does Geico have any hope of getting out from under this ruling? And how did we get to this point anyway? And how about a different Missouri woman who lied to a federal judge and claimed a chimpanzee at the center of a legal battle was dead? Tanya Haddock said she couldn't turn over the chimp as the court had ordered. Now it turns out she was lying. Tonka the chimp was alive and hidden in her basement. What could Judge Catherine Perry do now that the deceit has been revealed? These legal questions have no easy answers, and so we're lucky to have a panel of expert lawyers joining us today. Yes, our legal roundtable is in session to talk about all of this and more. And so joining us now is Connie McFarlane Butler. Connie is a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale, and in 2010, she founded her own firm. That's the law office of Connie McFarland Butler in Florissant. Connie, welcome back. Good afternoon. Thank you, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Mark Smith. Mark is a longtime attorney and a former vice chancellor and dean of career services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. And last but not least, Bill Freivogel. Bill is an attorney and a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Bill, welcome. Hi. So I'm dying to talk about this bizarre verdict against Geico and maybe the even more bizarre story involving a celebrity chimp. But, but we'll get to those in just a bit. First, a graduate student at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville is suing the school. The university issued three no-contact orders against Maggie DeYoung, saying she could not have any contact or even indirect communication with three classmates who'd accused her of harassment and microaggressions. Now, Maggie DeYoung says she never harassed anyone, but simply expressed her Christian conservative beliefs. The no-contact orders have been lifted. The university has closed its investigation into Maggie's con conduct, and last month she graduated from the program. But her lawsuit alleges the university violated her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Bill Freivogel, what's at the heart of these allegations she's making? Well, that, that, she, that she was punished by a public university for her... Um, her, her her political and religious views uh and i mean cer certainly she was <laughs> you think she, she was yeah she was i mean i guess there'll be some questions raised about well now that she's graduated and you know is the whole thing sort of sort of moot or not but but i yeah i think she has uh, i i think the university violated her her constitutional rights i mean she had they, she did things like um uh, you know, may not have been entirely collegial. You know, wearing uh, Blue Lives Matter paraphernalia and and telling uh, some of her less Christian uh, colleagues they were going to go to hell. <laughs> and uh, but you know, I'm not. I don't. I don't think uh, the university went ahead and you know, with without citing. You know uh, ex what what it was relying upon it said that she could have no contact with those with those students, mm -hmm. and I just uh, I just think that's absurd. Connie, this seems to come mostly from Facebook posts. 
And frankly, these Facebook posts seemed kind of innocuous as, as far as Facebook posts go. As, as Bill said, I don't think they were likely to win her many friends, maybe, among her fellow students. Well, I don't think it was limited to just Facebook posts. Uh, if you take a look at the petition that was filed, uh, apparently there were discussions that were held in class that were not supported by the majority of the students who were in the classroom. Uh, they also had uh, in-class posting boards uh, where messages could be posted among students within the classroom uh, or who were in the classroom. And so it wasn't limited to just the Facebook post. And I took a look at the post that she that she made, and, uh, and they certainly aren't necessarily in line with my uh, political views and probably not the views of most young people on a college campus. But nonetheless, she still had to write to, to say what she say, said and to believe what she believed. I think that the campus uh, or that the university just went a bit too far uh, because apparently three students filed a complaint and apparently these students were egged on by the director of the art therapy program at the university to make a complaint that they were being harmed by these posts and by these comments by, that this young lady was making on Facebook and in class and on these posting boards. And the university, without according to the petition, without conducting any type of hearing whatsoever, mm -hmm. sent out these three no-contact uh, orders to this young lady. And these no-contact no orders, in essence, were really restraining orders when all was said and done because she was prohibited from having contact with them on or off campus. Uh, she was not to have any contact in person through any third parties, by telephone, by letter, by mail, or any form of electronic media. And given that these students were in this, you know, small art therapy graduate program. I'm not quite sure how this young lady was supposed to attend class yeah. or how she was supposed to, you know, participate in any class discussions if she could not have any communication whatsoever with these individuals. And another point was that after they issued these three no contact orders, they transmitted it to the campus police and indicated to this young lady that if she violated this order in any way, that there would be subsequent, you know, uh, consequences for violating the order. So in every shape, form, and fashion, this was a restraining order without a hearing, without being provided information about the allegations that were being made against her, and without providing the documents showing what allegedly she did and what university rules she violated. So I think that her, that her attorneys are on point when they say that this is a violation of her First Amendment rights as well as her right to due process. So so I would agree with both of what um, Connie and Bill said. Uh, I mean, they went too far, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's hard, though, to see all the facts. You've got the plaintiff's petition, and and it's, it's a very um, argumentative petition. We're hearing her case. You know? Yeah, right. Having said that, um, as of, you know, 30 years as a, a university administrator, on the one hand, and, and you know, WashU is a private in institution, so um, doesn't have the, some of the First Amendment issues that SIU has. But if you have students coming to you, and it sounds like, you know, this administrator may have uh, promoted this, but if you have students coming saying, these, this person is saying things in class and outside of class that, um, I, that are, I believe is sexual harassment or racial harassment of me. Not, mm -hmm. So you can, you know, it's one thing to say tall people don't belong in a university. It's another thing to say you, Mark Smith, as a tall person, don't belong there. And tall people are not a protected class. But if they said, Mark Smith, as a Catholic, you don't belong here, mm -hmm. that's a protected class. So the administrator has to move rather quickly to kind of make sure the, these people's, uh, these complainers' um, academic experience is not somehow impinged. Or, or the, now, college, the college that, can't think, just say, "Grow up." This, yeah, this woman's not harming you. They it. have to take this seriously. They have to take it seriously. I think, though, you know, what we can kind of glean from the facts, it doesn't seem like the things that were being said said you know, you, Sarah Fensky, don't belong here. Or they weren't directed at individuals. They were more just maybe unpopular political views mm -hmm. and, and 
unpopular views, and you have a right to that. So, yeah, and I, I'm curious about this role of the program director, which which Connie alluded to here. You know, if it was just students taking out no contact orders, maybe with some due process, this all could have worked out fine. But the fact that the program director seemed to have been directly involved, sort of encouraging. But I, I remember doing things like that, where a student yeah. would come to me and say. A female student would say, this is when I was at the law school, this male student is harassing me. So I'd call the male student in and say, hey, the student feels you're harassing her. Um, I I don't want that. I don't think you want that. We don't want this to turn in. Are you willing to not? And then I would get an agreement and we would memorialize it in writing so there was no misunderstanding. So I was using a fist in a velvet glove, but it was still a fist. So the program uh, director could have just been trying to help these students yeah. that were wound up. You, you, you feel, you know. Well, I, but, as, but as I recall, sure I was going to say, I, as I recall from the complaint that was filed, uh, the program director took it another step that after this investigation was started, she sent out an email to 30 of the students yeah, well, in the program and right. indicated that this young lady was investigation You're under Give it for me for misconduct. Yeah. So, yeah. Shouldn't so, have done that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it also sounds like there was maybe some contacting of alumni, and they were trying to get alumni involved to tell her, like, this is not a good course. Maybe uh-huh. just a few things here that a more prudent uh, university would have held back on. Yeah. I mean, I, think- I mean, free speech is tricky on a university campus because the university, as Mark says, does have a, uh, a legal responsibility to protect people from a hostile uh, sexual right. or racial mm-hmm. environment. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, they also have, uh, uh, particularly in the case of a public university like SIU, they have the, the constitutional obligation to protect the student's right of free speech, to say blue lives matter, and to wear that paraphernalia to, 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 uh, to class. Uh, that hat is a protected form <laughs> of speech. Yes. Wow. And it, even at a private university, typically the private university puts in their materials. We have a, you know, we, we abide by the University of Chicago model of free speech. And, and so you're almost not, it's not a contract, but it's kind of a contract that we're promising you this environment. And, and so students should be able to take advantage of it. It's safe to say that the art therapy program was not therapy. (laughs) (laughs) It does not seem like a very therapeutic space at SIUE last year. One last question about this one. These no contact orders were in place for just 18 days. And I feel like Connie did a great job of sort of illuminating why this would have made her educational experience really tough for those 18 days. But do you think we could see actual monetary damages here for what's a relatively short period? She has since gone on to graduate. Uh, well, it was a short period of time. She does allege in her complaint that she had sleepless nights. She suffered from anxiety, yada, 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 during that short period of time where this order was in place. So she may be entitled to a nominal amount. So you think this could more be precedent setting to the university might think twice before doing this again versus a, a large monetary sum? Uh, send a message verdict. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Connie McFarland Butler. We're also joined by Mark Smith and Bill Freivogel. We do need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about why the legal battle over a celebrity chimp in Missouri is now potentially a criminal matter. And after that, Geico faces a $5.2 million judgment over sex in a car they insured. What is happening in this world? This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. 
Now, I want to talk about a case uh, that personally I have found a little bit fascinating now for quite some time. This is a Missouri woman named Tanya Haddix could be in trouble after lying to a federal judge. Tanya Haddix owned a chimp named Tonka who'd appeared in movies. It was a celebrity chimp. Well, PETA had sued over his care, saying the squalid compound he lived in was a violation of the Endangered Species Act. U.S. District Judge Catherine Perry found some merit to PETA's claims, and eventually the parties formed a consent decree. It stipulated that the chimps in Tanya Haddix's care, including Tonka, needed to be turned over to an animal sanctuary. But when the time came to turn over Tonka, Tanya Haddix said she couldn't comply. She said Tonka had died of natural causes. Her husband had cremated him. Now fast forward almost a year, and PETA was able to prove that Tanya Haddix had lied. Tonka was alive. He'd been concealed in a cage in Tanya Haddix's basement near Lake of the Ozarks. This seemed like among the most blatant deceit I'd ever encountered in a civil lawsuit. Could that open her up to penalties? And, and if so, what kind of penalties could we be talking about? Mark, thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah, so it would be criminal perjury. Um, you can get up to five years for that. Uh, when I was kind of doing some research, it seemed like most of the time, if somebody's found guilty of it, it's one to two years. Um, so, In prison. Yeah. So this is serious stuff. Um, perjury is very hard to prove because usually, you know, you've got some wiggle room. I mean, there's no wiggle room. You know, you either to be or not to be. And she said he was not to be. He was dead. And he he was very much alive. So. She swore to this in front of a judge. <laughs> yeah, and, and Judge Perry, I mean, she's a no-nonsense judge. Um, and so, you know, if the criminal pro- – it sounds like she had scheduled this uh, woman, uh, Harding, to – or Haddix, um, and, and postponed it because of the criminal prosecution. But she could also do a contempt for what happened in her court. So this is what I'm curious about. Apparently she has made a referral and asking the FBI, I guess, to look at this as a possible criminal perjury case. If they weren't to take it or that referral hadn't been made, what kind of rights does she have as a judge to just handle this herself? I understand this is called a a criminal contempt proceeding. Could she just throw Tanya Haddix in jail? You know, that's a, I don't know as much about that. Do you, you well, 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 she could, and I think that would probably be in Ms. Haddock's best interest if it were limited to criminal contempt as opposed to a perjury or false statement. Yeah. Um, How so? Uh, why, why would that be better with, for her? And from, from my review of the statute, with criminal contempt, uh, the court could impose fines as well as a prison sentence. Uh, the term for imprisonment is limited to six months. Oh, okay. The term or the amount of the fine is capped at $1,000. So it would be in Ms. Haddock's best interest if it were simply criminal contempt mm-hmm. as opposed to a felony for perjury, as as you indicated, could be a sentence of up to five years in prison. So, so yeah, Judge, I'll take the criminal contempt. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the fact that Judge Perry has now referred this for this criminal um, prosecution She's actually kind of upping yeah. the stakes here. She's taking this even more seriously than just a unilateral contempt finding. Absolutely. So her husband, Tanya Haddix's husband, also provided testimony. He said he had cremated this chimp. We now know, of course, this chimp was alive the whole time. Bill Freivogel, do you think the husband could end up getting sucked into this? <laughs> well, he probably will get uh, could get sucked into it if there's a, a subsequent trial. I don't know. I guess he could be charged. I mean, it looks like the referral is limited to her. Uh, but I would say that a good takeaway is that it's a really bad idea to lie to a federal judge or an FBI agent. Those are two really Those are two no-nos. Yeah, just don't do that. (laughs) So here is what Tanya Haddock said. This this woman is known for picking up her phone when the media calls. She talked to me last year and was sobbing (laughs) as she talked about the death of this chimp. I feel so lied to. Well, so she recently took Fox 2 News' call. She said, I still stand on my promise to Tonka. I would do anything to protect him from the evil clutches of PETA and the hellhole they placed him in, and that if the judicial system was just, he never would have left the only home he's ever known. She's basically saying, I did this on principle. She's not trying to claim any excuse other than I was doing what's in the best interest of the chimp by locking him in my basement for a year. Do you think that's likely to make Judge Perry go, okay, you know, she's she's standing on principle. No, still violated the law, you know. I mean, I can can sell heroin on principle uh, because I think it's safe, but the law doesn't care about that, you know. It's, the law is the law, and 
Lack and of, and this, was, this was a consent judgment. So it was <laughs> yeah, a dissent yeah. decree. So they yeah. sat down and they negotiated this decree and it was entered. So she had a say mm-hmm. in what was ultimately entered by the court. It wasn't a situation where they had a hearing and then the judge made an arbitrary decision that she disagreed with. She had input in negotiating the judgment that was put in place. And then she just said, screw it. I'm going to just, you know. And, and also she was negotiating with PETA and PETA was kind of skeptical about this. So, I mean, like I said, you know, you don't often get somebody just saying to the judge, judge, you know, I'm telling you A when it's B, and then you find out it's, you just don't get that kind of stuff. Because lawyers are always saying, oh, well, let's see about criminal perjury. He lied on the stand, but it's really hard to prove that. But lack of remorse does not help a criminal defendant. Yeah, so this statement to Fox 2, you would not advise your client to do that. <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> well, it doesn't appear that Tanya Haddix is really taking advice from lawyers at this no. point. Hopefully, if she happens to be listening to public radio and she'll, she'll hear this, she'll begin to express remorse because it sounds like she is headed for trouble. Are you taking any action against her since she lied to for you? For lying to me, yeah. I know. Shouldn't it be that if you lie on a public think, radio show? Isn't that just as bad? I think you can lie on bad? a public radio. I think you can rely to reporters. I mean, well, doesn't thanks, that happen Mark. all the time? Yeah. It kind of does happen all the time, and yet it goes back to people usually aren't quite this bad. And I think also you can lie to police, but you can't lie to the FBI. And um, Interesting. I don't know why that is. That's mm-hmm. some interesting advice that I don't, intend don't, to take under Yeah, well, wait. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I'm just talking. Right. I'm not Mark giving legal advice. need to double check that. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, let's talk about another high-profile lawsuit. This is one where I don't see anybody doing anything that's going to land them in criminal contempt, but it is pretty interesting. The promoters behind the Lufest Music Festival had sued a sound and lighting company that had been one of its vendors. They accused the ownership self of sabotaging their festival. They said he wanted to start his own festival, and he destroyed theirs by pulling out, and then in the days right before this festival, going public with the fact that he'd pulled out, claiming people hadn't been paid. They say it led to the collapse of the whole thing. Now, they ended up dropping that lawsuit against Chip Self three months after filing it. Chip Self filed a counterclaim. He took that all the way to trial. Earlier this month, he was awarded $875,000. So he was alleging defamation and malicious prosecution. Bill, what would he have to do here to make that case? Well, he, do do what he did. You know that that, uh, <laughs> that that he that he was harmed, and and that uh, and, and, and that his reputation he was defamed. Even though these allegations that they made against him, these were made in a lawsuit. And maybe I'm ignorant, but I thought you could sort of have some sort of protection well, for making a claim in a lawsuit. They were made in all sorts of forms. I mean, I guess in the lawsuit, in, in, in print. Uh, so the, the, I think the, you know, the defamation was pretty wide, wide, widespread. It's, and it seems like everybody wants to sue everybody these days for defamation. You know, think about uh, 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 Palin. Think about uh, uh, Heard and, and Johnny Depp. Defamation uh, has been in the news. Yeah, right? Dominion, the lawsuits involving Dominion uh, voting machines. Yeah, I mean, do you think this is a good example? This is the kind of case where somebody has a, a pretty good claim they were defamed? Or is this more one of these questionable ones we see some legal experts saying, I'm not so sure about this op-ed that Amber Heard wrote, for example. C- Connie, what's your take on this one? Yeah, well, on this particular case, I'm not quite sure it's as uh, clear-cut uh, so to speak, but apparently the jury thought that it was. They rendered a verdict in under four hours, which is unheard of in most civil cases. Mm. Uh, uh, apparently, they you know took time to pick a juror, uh, a, a foreman, and uh, read the uh, jury instructions and quickly came up with a verdict. So apparently, the jury thought that this was pretty clear cut and awarded a pretty substantial verdict of eight hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. So I think another kind of lesson to learn from this, you know, when, when when I would teach law at the university, I always say, you know, when you, it's easy, business clients are always, well, let's sue them. And, um, you know, yeah, you can sue, but they might sue you back. Yeah. And, 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 and that tends to escalate things. And, and that's what happened in this case. I suspect if Lufest had not sued this person, they wouldn't be facing this huge uh, judgment that yeah. they're now facing. So well, they- actually, he sued first. He sued for breach of contract right. first, then Lufest turned and sued him 
uh, for defamation, and then he in turn sued them for defamation <laughs> yeah. and okay. for malicious prosecution. So they so were they definitely were each other. yeah they were definitely one upping one another. But he got the last laugh. Yeah. He got the last laugh. The question is, is he going to get paid? So this music festival is defunct, <laughs> right? We don't have sadly we no longer have Lou Fest to party at. What are the odds he's going to be able to collect on this? Well, I tell all of my clients that half of the battle is getting the judgment. The other half of the battle is actually collecting on the judgment. And I think that uh, in this case, uh, he is going to have a very difficult time collecting on a judgment from a defunct organization. So you can't get blood from a turnip. And and, and people don't understand that. I think they think, oh, um, you know, this person won $1.1 million. And this is our, our car sex case, too. Just because you have a judgment doesn't mean... Uh, then you have to find where their assets are, and you have to either attach them or garnish them, and and then it takes a while to collect, and and people don't go out of their way. It's not like at the end of the trial they just hand you the money. And so um, there's a term, judgment proof. I always tell my kids when we drive down in South Grand and you see like a 1973 Bonneville that's all rusted out, you know the guy's drinking a tall boy and smoking crack at the same time. That guy's judgment proof. He's He doesn't care about anything because what are you going to do to him? He, yeah. If he, he, if he hits you, you're not going to be able to collect. He doesn't have insurance. Yeah. He doesn't have any money. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and so the law doesn't, you know, law's not really good against super rich people and super poor people. It's us in the middle that the law has some effect on. Interesting. Well, so Chip Self, though, I mean, he maybe comes out of this a little more more whole than he was. Even if he can't collect, he's now getting the headlines that that vindicate him. Yeah, right. You know, he was concerned about the bad publicity to his business. I imagine now if you Google him, what's coming up is that he won this verdict. Every now and then you have a client who simply wants to fight on principle and they're not worried about the uh, the monetary judgment. And hopefully that's the case for him uh, because the likelihood that he'll get a penny from this is probably slim to none. So I want to talk about another case here. A St. Louis County man has dealt a blow to efforts to force people to pay the city's earnings tax, even if they weren't actually working in the city. Like, say, during a pandemic, your employer may be based here. Well, you were working from home. You were on Zoom. This guy had his money withheld through July of 2020 as if he was working in the city. He said he only worked 16 days during the city. He filed for an earnings tax refund. The city denied it. He appealed in small claims court, and he won. Mark, do you think the city has a good chance of of reversing this? Um, They're going to have a trial de novo, which means they start over because this was small claims court. I mean, there have been lots of little cases like this going on. And, you know, the city's position on the earnings tax is if you live in the city, you pay earnings tax. If you work in the city, you pay earnings tax, even if you live in the county. And their position, I mean, like when I was at the law firm, if you were traveling on the road and you didn't live in the city, you would get a refund for that. But now people working from home, the city has taken the position, no, your, your employer is still in the city, so you still earn that earnings tax. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but that seems like a tough argument to make. The, and, the city's case here is yeah, this Yeah, I think the city's case is going to be tough. And the, the bad thing is that that's a huge source of revenue for the city of St. Louis. Did they see $150 million? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 36% of the city's budget comes yeah. from earnings tax. Yeah, I mean, as a city uh, resident, this, this somewhat strikes fear in my heart because Me I too. see more and more of my colleagues working from home every day and not technically having to pay that earnings tax unless they also live in the city. And yet... Judge Christopher McGraw had thrown out there was a class action lawsuit filed over this, which would have been a huge blow to the city. That is no longer proceeding as a class action. Bill, is this going to be a matter of people just chipping away tiny case by tiny case? Well, maybe so. But I think that McGraw action is more overall significant than this, uh, you know, this one case that now faces another trial de novo. So so I think that the the, the McGraw's decision that it, there wouldn't be a class action, I think that's that's pretty important. So as we city residents here, we should not lose too much sleep yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys can never give me too much hope. 
We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is attorney Bill Freivogel. We're also joined by Mark Smith and Connie McFarland Butler. We need to take a quick break. Coming up next, we're going to dig into that huge judgment after a bizarre case involving sex in a car and the car insurer that is now apparently on the hook. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Our legal roundtable is in session today. So there is a case that has been in the news this past month. And as the weeks went by, all I could think about is I cannot wait for the legal roundtable to explain this to me. Because a lot of times when there's legal matters in the news, I think, okay, I kind of get how this happened. And maybe the layman doesn't quite understand the intricacies of this, but it makes sense on a certain level. This one, I'm not sure it makes sense on any level to me, and I'm waiting for a good explanation. So a Missouri woman had consensual sex with her partner. They had been together for a while. Apparently, during this time period where they were together, they had unprotected sex in his 2014 Hyundai Genesis. Now, he had been previously diagnosed with uh, human papillomavirus, HPV. He had not told her about it. They did not use protection. So she ended up suing him and Geico, the car insurer, for $1 million dollars. She apparently won, and she won a judgment of $5.2 million against Geico. Connie, this is a complicated one. Let's ask Mark. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, first of all, How I mean, the Kansas, so the Kansas City Star said that she won a judgment against Geico. But when I read the Court of Appeals decision, I don't think that's the case. She won a, um, a judgment against the insured. The, the insured, the the, the individual, man. yeah, the the boyfriend, right? Okay. And so, so then, so what happened was, she asked Geico as the insurer, "Hey, um, I got this in the car, so you're covering him, and you owe me money." Geico says, "No, that's not within the terms of the of the coverage," and and we were saying it's not covered. So then, she sues. Um, the boyfriend, and they do something called an 065 action, which I had never heard of before. But basically, you agree to have a lawsuit to determine liability between these two people, and um, and they decided to take it to arbitration. And arbitration is where, so say Connie and I have a lawsuit against each other, rather than wait for the court, we say, Bill Freibogel, you're the arbitrator. You decide, and, and it might be pretty formal like a trial, but it might be pretty informal. But Bill's decision is binding because we've agreed to it. So they come up to a decision where um, she he was liable for $5.2 million or something, the limits of the policy. And so under this statute um, that they did this, they have to then give GEICO notice. So they give GEICO notice, but this is after the arbitration. And after they've, she's now filed a, a, a case in circuit court to kind of turn this arbitration award into a judgment, like we were talking about before, so you can enforce this judgment. So, and the courts seem very um, kind of anti-insurance company on this one. And maybe it's because they're, you know, some would say, well, they're too plaintiff oriented. Other people would say, no, the insurance company should have you know, you, you should fight this out for this guy, represent him. But regardless, through some some weird timing issues, the insurance company got no right to basically fight the underlying liability. And so now what will happen, most likely, is this woman will bring an equitable garnishment action against Geico, trying to, inf- saying, this guy's your insured, I've got this award, and and now all they'll get to fight about is whether or not it's covered by the policy. I mean, I still, you know, you, I haven't read the policy. 
I find this hard to believe that this would be covered under the policy. It does seem hard jury. to believe, yeah. yeah. But who knows? And, you know, if I were GEICO, I would want to not put all my eggs in one basket. I also want to, I mean, $5.2 million for this, that seems like a lot of money. I, I don't know. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Or an STD. Yeah, yeah. And, and what were the damages? Yeah, how did they, they come did, up with that? You know, GEICO didn't give this woman the, the STD. That's where I keep getting stuck on this one. But so it sounds well, like Well, yeah, these- but if GEICO... If my if Geico's the insurance company and my and their insurer did something bad to somebody and it's covered, then you're liable. But so they're allowed to just go into arbitration together. These two exes. Let's say for the benefit of the doubt, they're actually exes. Right. <laughs> they are not colluding on this, and they go in and find an arbitrator. Can they just find any old arbitrator? And this guy can say, "Yep, this seems very damaging. Yep, here's how much it is. This seems like a situation that would be ripe for con- con- collusion, collusion and right. foul play." Uh, a- absolutely. I, I, I think one key thing to take into consideration is is that the the girlfriend or the petitioner did send a formal demand letter yeah. to Geico prior to these proceedings starting and demanded a $1 million payout. And Geico sent a letter refusing uh, the demand and also refusing to provide a defense for the boyfriend. Because typically, if you're covered by an insurance company, uh, they will provide an attorney to defend you in the action. And Geico did not provide him a defense, which I am sure that they are regretting They could have done it with a reservation of rights where they say, we'll defend you, but we're not saying we're covered. Right. But let's just be on the safe side. But no, they left him swinging in the wind. And I'm sure that there's some heads that are rolling over at Geico (laughs) over the decision not to to provide a defense to him. And so this gentleman and the girlfriend got together and picked the arbitrator. And and then according to the record, they did have a formal proceeding where they did opening statements and presented witnesses and closing arguments. And she asked for $9.9 $9.9 million in the closing argument, and ultimately the arbitrator decided on the $5.2 million verdict. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think with, you know, Geico makes the argument on appeal that there was fraud and collusion here. And I will tell you, reading over the, the, you know, the transcript and so forth regarding this case, it does feel like that there's some level of collusion <laughs> And and then you also have to take into account the the timing in the uh, in the circuit court uh, because the young lady provided notice to Geico that hey by the way we've entered into this yeah. agreement and your policy is what we've chosen that that's the only place we can collect from on this verdict and then she files this petition with the court and Geico goes oh we got to intervene and so uh, Geico files a motion to intervene and the circuit court judge. Who's handling the case said, you know what? Let me go ahead and enter the verdict first. first right. And then, Geico, I'll give you permission to intervene. If you think that wasn't strategic, then yeah. you are asleep at the wheel. So they were not a party to the case because the judge did not grant the motion to intervene until the judgment had been right. entered. So what rights do you have, Geico? Yeah. Do you think the judge did something a little fishy there then? I'm not going to say that it's necessarily fishy, uh, but I know that there are judges who like to make sure they get things cleared off their docket and it's off my docket to stay. And if the judgment is entered and you're intervening after the judgment is entered, in, in essence, you have no real rights. The judge was able to make this a higher court's problem, right. basically. Right. And that yeah. might have been the judge's motivation. Mm-hmm. So the Missouri Court of Appeals has now ruled they're saying yes, like Geico cannot intervene, basically. No, they're saying, they're saying yeah, you don't get a new trial. You don't get you, – you have to – he has this judgment against him. And so if he wants to come after you, Geico, you know, you throw up your defense of – of whether or not you're covered, but you don't get to relitigate whether or not um, she got it from him in that car, whether she got it, you know, in some other place, um, the nature of the damages. The other thing is, like I said, this is, we're really in the weeds here on this case. And this statute has been amended a couple of times. And I suspect the insurance co- companies will come into Jeff City and will revise this even more to say, because the insurance companies want to be able to 
uh, get involved from the beginning, intervene, and do discovery. And you know they want to they want to have their day in court at this point and still be able to say, you're not covered. And that seems fair. I mean, this is like, and I understand that this McDonald's hot coffee case has since been, it turns out to be so much more complicated than what we were told back in the 80s when that was the the shocking legal story (laughs) of the day. But this feels like one of these shocking legal stories. Yeah, but here's the other side. I've been paying my premiums to this insurance company my whole life. And now when I need them, they say, I'm sorry, you're not covered. You're on your own. And so maybe they shouldn't be doing that. But what if you, I mean, this is not like you were in a car accident here. You know, an accident occurred in the car. (laughs) (laughs) It's all, there are many ways to tell the truth, you know, Sarah. And so. Bill Freivogel, what do you make of this morass? (laughs) I'm glad they explained it all. Uh, (laughs) I I mean, I just don't think the thing passes the smell test. I mean, it just seems ridiculous that, that. the insurance company should have to pay five. I'm not. I'm no fan of insurance companies, but five point two million dollars for uh, what happened. <laughs> Do but, you think there's any chance the Missouri Supreme Court could get involved with this? That they could pick this case up in light of just the, the shock that has greeted this ruling? I don't know. I don't know either. But but I mean, Geico doesn't have to pay this necessarily. They still get their chance to say. This is not covered by the insurance policy. Yeah. I well, mean, there is a there is a, a declaratory action that exactly. is, that's pending that. in federal court. court. So now tell us what that means, because at this point, I think we all of us are like, wait, what even is this? <laughs> well, I, I, when when this 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 case first began, and and, and yeah. Geico denied that there was coverage, they filed for a declaratory action in federal court. Basically, judge declared that this particular incident, this type of incident, is not covered because this is not the, quote, normal use of a vehicle. Uh, And so that action is pending and has been pending. And I think that Geico put all of their eggs in that basket basket and said, poo-poo on this Missouri case. And then they got caught with their pants down. Could this federal action still influence what? (laughs) Could this federal action still come in and save the day for Geico? I think there is a possibility that this federal action, if a federal court judge says that, you know what, this particular activity is not covered Covered. under an insurance policy. And I think that that may negate this $5.2 million. I mean, he's he's liable to her, but it doesn't mean it's covered by the insurance. So you still got to prove that. You know, one other little, uh, as long as we're wallowing in the weeds. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed, because I had to look this up. The action was uh, Nuck Pro Tuck, tunk, mm-hmm. I, which I, uh, if I learned it in law school, I forgot it, which means now for then in Latin, because when they originally did the first opinion, they forgot to attach the arbitration the award. Yeah, which is kind of a little ministerial mistake. So the, you come, you do this Nuck Pro Tunk thing to fix like this clerical right it's basically an amended judgment your latin pronunciation is too good yeah well (laughs) we don't know because it's a dead language so i might be right (laughs) this is true mark might be right here's my question of all the lawyers involved in this and you know it sounds like geico maybe shouldn't have put all their eggs in this basket are we seeing any exemplary lawyering here like are are we looking at this with amazement and we're impressed Uh, absolutely kudos to the plaintiff's attorney who handled this case uh, and filed it. His strategy was masterful. Uh, I think he did an exceptional job of navigating the current statutes and and, and and utilizing the facts that he had with the law that exists. Do you think ultimately, if you had to predict, will his client, this Missouri woman, will she end up getting a million dollars or more? I don't know if she'll get a million or more, but uh, it may be in Geico's best interest to, to funnel some money her way no. to make this go away. To end up settling the right. case for an, so for $500,000 or something like that. But still. That's not bad. A big chunk of money. Right, it is. We're talking today to our legal roundtable, and yes, we were in the weeds there, but what interesting weeds. Uh, the lawyers on our roundtable today, that is Mark Smith, Connie McFarland butler and Bill Freivogel. I want to talk just about a couple of more political matters that have been in the news in the past month. Uh, Attorney General Eric Schmidt has officially lost his marquee case involving mask mandates. This was at the uh, the Columbia Public Schools. It seems like it's the end of the road for this one. Bill Freivogel, what happened? I don't think it's ever.
never the end of the road for, for <laughs> to the attorney general's uh, fight to keep our children from being masked. Um, but yes, it 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 does seem as though that was the marquee case, the Columbia, the Columbia case, and uh, and and they they said it's no longer a live controversy. The kids aren't wearing masks. Uh, I think there is still a, a case alive in, involving University City. Uh, of course, they're probably on summer vacation, but but where University City has continued, as, as I understand it from reading the stories about this, that they have continued to have uh, masks and there's a separate case there. So maybe they can try to keep something alive there. But in general, it, it has, uh, I, I think it's fallen apart. But, but the, the Attorney General's office does say that, you know, and the Attorney General himself, that he's going to make sure that no child has to be masked and is is ready to go back and sue if, if it happens. He will continue to fight. He has also issued subpoenas to seven school districts in Missouri. He wants documents on how the districts obtain parental consent prior to students answering surveys about political beliefs, mental health issues, religious practices, income, and more. He's also seeking contracts on third-party vendors that the district employs. It's interesting. He has filed some prominent sunshine law requests in the past. This time he's going a subpoena route. Mark Smith, any thoughts on that idea? You know, I mean, he's running for United States Senate. Um, I think that may have something to do with it. Yeah, but, just a wee bit. But that's, yeah, maybe I'm Subpoenas being... maybe sound more serious to people. Yeah, and it sounds like you're sticking it to him and everything. And that's so. that's the impression that, that he wants to yeah. leave, perhaps. I think so. Well, you know, that's not a nice thing for me to say, but it's what but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is an absolute defense. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Connie, what do you make of this? Well, I, I think that with him issuing the subpoenas, then you have the weight of the court behind the subpoena. And if you don't comply, then, uh, you know, you can seek relief from the court uh, for failure to comply. So I think that the subpoena may have a bit more teeth mm-hmm. uh, than just a sunshine request. And so I think, frankly, it's a smarter avenue. I think a lot of us who file sunshine requests, there's frequently very long delays yeah. before you get anything. With the right, subpoena, right. you can't mess around. No, right. no, with the subpoena, you know, basically you have to provide 11 days notice uh, and so that really kind of limits the time frame uh, in which the individuals have to produce the documents that are being requested. And then, like I said, you have the weight of the court behind the subpoena. So I think it's a smart move. It seems that Schmidt wants sort of wants to be superintendent in chief for the yeah. for the entire state of Missouri. <laughs> He's very involved with our schools. <laughs> he certainly is. That used to be something that people would run on in a much different way. Yeah, a much than different he's, way, he's kind of especially on this. Re- Republicans. Right. So when we talk about Republicans, a guy that is running against Eric Schmidt in this race for Senate, this is our former governor Eric Greitens. Um, he unleashed a firestorm uh, very recently with his ad depicting a SWAT team hunting for rhinos. And by that, he means Republicans in name only. They use a battering ram and smoke grenades. They come into a house, guns blazing. Here's a quote from this ad. Get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. Definitely a pretty violent ad that seems to be suggesting coming in and and trying to shoot one's fellow party members. Facebook took it down. Interesting wrinkle here, Bill Freivogel. TV stations, had he spent the money to air it on TV, they wouldn't have had the right to do that. Yeah, that's right. Why is that? Well, the reason is the Communications uh, Act of 1934. Uh, And... uh, so it has a, a no censorship. I'm relying on my friend Mark Sableman here to an excellent attorney read this out for me. A no no censorship, no liability rule, which means that stations can't censor or refuse to run uh, an ad if Brighton's campaign were to pay per, were to pay for it, even if they're libelous or they're otherwise objectionable. And certainly, this is highly <laughs> objectionable. Uh, and uh, but then again, the stations also can't be sued. Uh, for that. For that, running the ad. For running the ad. But, you know, it's different with other uh, media. Uh, the uh, uh, newspapers could refuse to run it, but but if they run what they for, for what they run, they can be sued. And uh, online social media, uh, you know, they can edit their social, like Facebook, they can 
take it down and suffer suffer no consequences. It's just bizarre to think that it would be handled so differently across these various platforms. Mark Smith, as we're in an age where people are even more likely to pop an ad on Facebook and, and try to make it go viral, mm-hmm. do we need to maybe make these these things uh, more uniform? Yeah, um, I mean, that could be. I mean, we're, you know, the law is never good as technology changes rapidly. And, and it seems like you know, 15 years ago, TV ads were the main way, and now it's it's things on Facebook and this this creating a viral sensation. So maybe things will catch up. And you've got these private entities who are now, you know, so they're not government actors, but they're so powerful and so um, everywhere that people are starting to think, well, maybe we should regulate them. Our more. social media companies, basically. Right, right. Well, Greitens' response when when Facebook took it down was that, that he that's why he wants to go to Washington to take on you know the big uh, the big social media giants there. and basically force Facebook like even if you find this to be inciting violence you got to run it we want to change the law so you have to run it just like a TV station. Wow. (laughs) These are interesting times we live in. And as always, it's good to chew them over with our legal roundtable. Understand the law behind the strangeness that surrounds us in Missouri, whether we're talking about chimps in basements or sex in cars or rhino hunting in vacant houses on now viral Facebook ads. Uh, Bill Freivogel, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Bill is an attorney and professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Uh, Mark Smith, thank you for joining us. Thanks, and think you know I, I know you're moving on to other things but um it's been great you're even though you're not a lawyer you get these things really well i love that you um you ask good questions and it really um it's been great working with you well Breath thank you mark I, I feel the yeah. same way about all three yeah, of you yeah. um it's i have very bittersweet feelings about these final couple shows i'm doing here so <laughs> mark is a former vice chancellor dean of career services at washington university connie mcfarland butler of the law office of connie mcfarland butler thank you for joining us thank you sarah Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.